Welcome to GradCast, the official podcast of the Society of Graduate Students at the University of Western Ontario. Welcome to GradCast. GradCast is the official radio show of the Society of Graduate Students here at Western University. I'm your host, Alex Mozinski, and I'm joined by co-host Gina Coombe today. Gina, how are you doing? Good. How are you, Alex? Pretty good. Do anything special over the long weekend? Um, no, I was just back home in Toronto for a week last week, but I got to enjoy some good food and yeah, so how was your long weekend? Pretty good. It was a little bit hectic because I went away to Cuba and then I was there for a week and then I came back and I was here for about three days. Um, it was my girlfriend's birthday in the three day period that I was back in London, so I had to like get her a present, prep things, and then do that busy, and then busy yeah and then i went <laughs> camping over the long weekend so friday saturday sunday monday i was away so i'm glad to be back glad to be here with you guys and glad to be hearing a little bit from uh phd candidate joel armstrong how you doing so far so good all right so joel you're doing your phd your second year phd student mm-hmm. uh in psychology so tell us a little bit how did you get into psychology <laughs> well my uh <laughs> my path to psychology was not particularly uh deliberate I was in grade 12, and I wanted to go to university, and then I chose a major. Um, (laughs) There's actually really not a lot to it. I liked writing, and I knew I'd get a chance to do a little bit of that, but I also was comfortable with math and science and wanted to kind of stay involved with that as well, and so I thought that that would provide me with an opportunity to kind of uh, get involved in a little bit of all of that, and I got pretty lucky, and I took my first class, Introduction to Psychology, and I just loved it, and so... Uh, yeah, so I was pleased at that point. After a couple of weeks, I thought maybe I made the right choice. That's amazing. I probably would have made a similar choice to you if I would taken first-year psychology in first year. I ended up taking it in, like, third year because I switched into a neuroscience program at U of T, and I loved it, too. So I applaud your decision, and uh, I'm a little bit envious that you got to make it from the get-go. Well, I'm a little envious. You get to scan brains, so... I don't or get whatever to... whatever you do. Uh, <laughs> I get, to, brains. I get to fight pet cells. So yeah, it's, the it's, thing too. it's a little different. <laughs> I like it, though. I love neuroscience. Okay. Um, so you're supervised by Jim Olson, yeah. and you've recently done some research on romantic relationships. Mm-hmm. Um, so can you tell us a little bit about the research that you've done recently? Yeah. So the research that I've been involved in recently with uh, Lauren Campbell in the Romantic Relationships Lab is re- uh, revolves around something called what we're, or what we're calling the vicarious spotlight effect. Uh, so the idea with the vicarious spotlight effect is essentially that there is this cognitive bias that exists across other uh, in general that we call the spotlight effect, and that's the tendency to overestimate the degree to which people are paying attention to us as a function of our behavior. And so if you've ever been walking down the street and you catch your foot on a crack that's a little <laughs> bit higher than the rest of them, and you do the kind of nothing happened, let's pretend I'm still walking thing, and you look around and you're sure that everyone on the street is staring at you right now. And when you look around, it turns out to be the case that no one really cares because they're busy living their own lives, mm-hmm. doing their own thing, and nobody really knows notices seriously no one everyone i always thought everybody noticed when i fell down no no embarrassed <laughs> mostly they don't really care because they have things in their own life that they're a little bit more concerned about than whether or not you know how to lift your feet high enough when you're walking down the street totally. i definitely don't i do it all the time i have lazy feet so i trip a lot um But, yeah, okay, so we think that uh, everyone's paying attention to us, but then you probably have at least a sense. You've probably seen someone do that at some point when you were walking down the street, and they kind of stumble, and you look at them, and you're like, oh, well, that's a shame. And then you go back to your day and forget (laughs) that that ever happened, because it doesn't really matter to you. And so essentially that's the spotlight effect, is the idea that we always think that people are paying attention to us way more than they are. 
Uh, and there seem to be two main reasons that this happens. One of those is just a simple what we call egocentric bias. And so the idea with the egocentric bias is just that we have a vastly disproportionate amount of access to our own internal states. Um, and so when we're embarrassed, we know how embarrassed we are. And so um, we assume that other people do as well, because that's just how we feel about the situation. But we're not entirely naive about the fact that other people feel differently than us about this. And so we do what's called an anchoring and adjusting process. And so we anchor to our own estimate of how embarrassed we are, based on the fact that we know how we feel about it. And then we discount that serially, step by step, until we've reached a point where we are confident that the other people probably feel that are paying this amount of attention to us what our new adjusted estimate is. But the problem is we still do a very bad job of that because our anchor is so high compared to the amount of attention that other people feel uh, that is our behavior is worth that we never really discount it sufficiently. So even after discounting, we still vastly overestimate the amount that uh, people are paying attention to us. And so we were... It actually, I was talking to a friend of mine who was at a dinner, and my friend was there with her husband at an Easter dinner, and her husband... Uh, somebody at the dinner told a joke, and her husband thought it was very funny, and she did not. She <laughs> politely smiled and kind of moved on. She actually thought it was in slightly poor taste. Um, but her husband thought it was so funny that he started pounding the table and <laughs> laughing out loud, and he got up from his chair and went out on the balcony. Felt, I think he was getting a touch of the vapors. He thought he needed a little <laughs> fresh air to make sure he didn't pass out from how hard he was laughing at this otherwise unfunny joke. And so I was talking to my friend about that, and she was mortified. She was absolutely mortified that this had happened in front of a group of people. And I also have a partner who is a little bit louder and a little bit more boisterous than I am. And so I was talking to my friend and we were saying, isn't it weird how the behavior of your partner feels like it directly reflects on you, even though everyone knows you obviously have no control over your partner's behavior. It still embarrasses you when they do something that you wouldn't do yourself. And so as we were talking about it, she also has some psych background, uh, a master's in psychology uh, and uh, so I said yeah it's kind of like the spotlight effect we started talking about that and then I contacted my friend Sarah Stan in the romantic relationships lab and said hey is this a thing and she's like I don't think it is and so we kind of like, kicked it around a little bit and uh, did some research and I'll spoil it now and say it seems like there is a vicarious spotlight <laughs> effect I'm not here to discuss my null results okay so the spotlight effect is this inferred feeling and it happens from one person, I guess, to another in a relationship, or that's a terrible way of putting it, but I'm going to keep it that way. Um, so it's so it's a vicarious spotlight effect. Um, ha is it only a negative thing? Can it be a positive thing? Like, you know, could you be more proud of your partner than uh, you would be of just another random person? And how how would that affect the spotlight effect? Yeah. So um, we, as we continue developing the research, uh, pro research program, that was a question we had as well. And so our third study actually addresses that directly, and we included a positive behavior condition as well as a negative behavior condition. And it turns out to be the case that you can indeed, indeed um, feel pride, and there is a positive version of the spotlight effect, the vicarious spotlight effect. And not to be nitpicky, but I am a scientist, so I'm going to be anyway. Um, you mentioned being proud of your partner as a function of the vicarious spotlight effect. I know that is definitely something that would happen within the context of that relationship. Uh, the spotlight effect, uh, spotlight effect itself is actually referring to what you experience. Uh, mm -hmm. So it's not that you feel proud towards your partner or proud of your partner. The interesting thing that we think about the spotlight effect, the vicarious spotlight effect, is that you feel that you are proud or you are ashamed um, as though it was you who was performing that action. 
So why would that be actually? I'm I'm curious about that. Is it because you choose your partner? It's like, ha, huh, I'm with that person, so it reflects well on me, or is it just a? Uh, well, it actually seems to be, we don't know yet. The data's not in. So this is our speculation and where we're hoping to head with the rest of the research. Um, but it seems to be the case. No, it doesn't seem. I just said that. <laughs> but we are speculating that it is the case, um, that it occurs as a result of what's called self-other overlap. And there's uh, an extensive body of research within the romantic relationships literature that looks at the degree to which we kind of lose ourselves in our partner. Um, actually, that's not a good way of putting it. It's the opposite. It's that we adopt our partner into ourselves. Uh, and so there are some subjective measures of this. One of them is called the inclusion of other and self scale. Uh, that's very widely used, and that just has different... Basically, it's just a series of Venn diagrams uh, with increasingly overlapped pairs of circles, and you circle... You, you indicate the pair of circles that uh, matches how overlapped you feel your identity is with your partners. Um, but there are also some really more basic cognitive uh, mechanisms that seem to be taking place in terms of self-other confusion. Uh, for example, there's some research that suggests when presented with uh, lists of adjectives that apply to you and your partner or to you and a stranger, it's more difficult for you to uh, differentiate yourself from the list of adjectives that describes your partners. At the basic cognitive level, our partners actually do become a part of ourselves as far as our brains are concerned, or as far as our minds are concerned. Um, because they, they, we just adopt them into our self-concept uh, in the same way that other salient, ish, uh, other salient components of identity can be adopted into self, like uh, race, for instance. There's spotlight effects that relate to race, uh, which suggests that we feel like we're representatives of a certain group that matches our identity. And in the case of a relationship, you are a member of a group. It's just a very small group, a group of two. And you and your partner are the only two whose behavior reflects on that group, whether you're in charge of that behavior or not. So beyond romantic relationships, would this vicarious spotlight effect exist within family relationships, parent and children, or siblings, or best friends? Um, would, it, would you predict that it's there as well, or is it more specific to uh, romantic relationships because uh, you're a little bit closer with, with that person and the relationship is very different? Um, so the closeness of the relationship is an important component, but I don't think that there's anything unique to romantic relationships uh, that is the exact reason this happens. I think the closeness is probably a large part of why this happens. Uh, and so we haven't looked yet, but we, are, we also have that question, and we are planning on spending a little time looking into whether or not there are other types of relationships that uh, elicit the vicarious spotlight effect. And parent-children is a particularly interesting example because one of the fundamental aspects of the spotlight effect isn't just that you think people are paying attention to you, but it's that you're wrong about how much people are paying <laughs> attention to you. And so um, when I think of the parent-child example... It's easy to say, oh, this probably happens with parents and children, because if you were a parent and your child was throwing a tantrum in a mall, you'd probably feel as though everyone was paying attention to you as a function of your child's behavior. But the issue with that is they very well might be, yeah. um, <laughs> because you do tend to have your attention drawn to a screaming child, you know, doing donuts on the floor because they didn't get the transformer that they wanted. Um, but no, in any relationship in which there is a significant component of identity overlap, we would expect that this might occur. And so one of the examples that I think would be interesting to look at is a graduate supervisor and graduate student uh, relationship, because your professional identities are so closely aligned. And you can imagine a situation 
if you were a supervisor and you took a your graduate student to a you know, prestigious conference, you're kind of doing them a favor and letting them, you know, they're a little out of their league maybe, but you trust <laughs> them to act appropriately. And then you took them to a cocktail hour and your student got kind of drunk. And it's not your choice, right? You don't choose as the supervisor how much your student drinks. But if that did happen, you can imagine that the supervisor would probably feel as though the other, you know, researchers in the room were thinking less than positive things about him as a function of having brought that person into that situation where they acted poorly. Hmm. So you kind of alluded to it already that the, I guess, closeness within a relationship would have to do with the spotlight effect itself. Can, I guess, the strength of the spotlight effect, if you could quantify that, predict uh, relationship strength then, do you think? I, we don't have any data to speak to that. And as I kind of alluded to, this is not exactly my primary area of research, so I can't say for sure whether or not that would be the case. But I don't think, my understanding at least of the other sort of the inclusion of other in self-research and self-other confusion is it's not necessarily just a function of relationship quality. It's more a function of the type of people who are in that relationship. And so it's easy to imagine if you had sort of a later in life relationship with two really well established and independent people that they could have a very happy and healthy relationship where they enjoyed each other's company and both of them were getting everything that they needed out of the relationship but they stayed as very separate people and so they don't integrate each other into their identity. They just have a, the way their relationship functions allows them to continue separately, but they have a very healthy and functional relationship. Have you ever looked into, um, I guess, like you said, um, married, maybe married couples versus non-married couples, like just starting their relationships? Uh, we haven't differentiated along the lines of length of relationship, but we actually have the data to do that. We just haven't looked at that yet to see if the, uh, if the relationship is moderated by relationship length. Uh, sorry, the relation between uh, partner behavior and the vicarious spotlight effect, whether or not that relation between those variables is moderated by relationship length. And we actually used MTurk, uh, Amazon's Mechanical Turk, to collect data online. And so instead of using participants from the Psych 1000 participant pool, we got a much broader range of people participating. And so from our demographics, we know that our participants, we had three studies, um, but our participants' ages generally ranged from about 18 to about 70. Wow. And relationship length, we said they had to be at least three months in a relationship in order to participate. And the normal relationship length for the three studies was between one and 53 years was the longest <laughs> that we got. And so we should definitely look at that because we have actually pretty good data to see whether or not that might mm -hmm. be the case. Mm -hmm. And I would imagine there would be at least some effect, um, not necessarily... As I said, there are situations where you can imagine that people would have long and healthy relationships where this wasn't the case, but in general, you can imagine the longer you spent with someone, probably the more integrated they would come into yourself, uh, would become in your self-concept. Mm -hmm. So you say you use, what was it called? M-Turk? M-Turk, yeah. M-Turk. So um, I guess, how, how do you go about conducting this research? Just as a quick side note. That's a very good question. Uh, so what we use are uh, hypothetical scenarios. And so our scenarios, depending on the condition, so our, our um, neutral behavior condition is something along the lines of uh, you and your partner are at a dinner party. Uh, actually, we also vary the degree to which you know the people at the dinner party. And so that's where we introduce our first three levels of that uh, variable, or the three conditions. And so you either are at a dinner party with strangers, with acquaintances, or with close others. And so we say you and your partner are at a dinner party with some people you barely know, some people who you're acquaintances with, or some people you are very close with. As you are waiting to be seated, you 
and your partner are mingling separately with different groups of people. Uh, from where you're standing, as you're chatting with your group of people, you can hear your partner blank. And so in the neutral behavior condition, you hear your partner ask where the bathroom is. Uh, in the negative behavior condition, you hear your partner release a loud and conspicuous fart. <laughs> and so, and then it finishes off by saying either it is clear that your partner is the one who asked the question or it is clear that your partner is the one who farted. And so we ask people to envision this scenario, auditorily envision this scenario. And... Um, <laughs> Then we asked them a few questions that were derived from a study on the racial spotlight effect. It's a two-item scale of, of feelings of being in the spotlight. So it's just questions like, to what degree do you feel that everyone in the room would be paying attention to you? And a, another similar question. Uh, and that's what we use as our measure of spotlight effect. And then we also do a number of, uh, ask a number of questions um, from a shame and guilt scale to assess not just the hopefully the cognitive bias, which it seems to be the case that it is, uh, but also the affective reaction that accompanies that cognitive reaction of your estimate of the amount of attention that's being paid to you. And in the study three that I mentioned, in which we included a positive behavior condition, we also had um, you hear your partner tell a very funny joke, and everyone laughs. Okay. So was there a difference between total stranger and... A casual acquaintance and close friend with how embarrassed the person would feel? Uh, yeah, there actually was. So there was no difference in the neutral behavior condition. People didn't feel that um, the audience had any effect on the degree to which people were paying attention to them. But in the negative behavior condition, uh, we found the opposite of what we expected. And it turns out that in the close others condition, people felt less that, they were, that the attention was being paid to them compared to strangers and acquaintances, which was the same. You think it's that they felt less that the attention was being paid to them, or that they felt that, that they cared less, or is, is there a way to differentiate that? Um, well, the wording of our questions is pretty specific about the degree to which you think people are paying attention to you as a function of your partner's behavior. Um, it might be the case that they cared less because the, the measures of pride and the measures of shame and guilt mirrored the effects of the spotlight effect, and so they were also less. Uh, so there was also significantly less affect uh, that was related, positive or negative. But because of the way the questions are worded, it seems less likely that it is just the fact that they don't care, uh, <laughs> rather than something about the nature of the audience type that affects the way that they estimate uh, how much attention is being paid to them. I'm wondering if there's sex differences. That's a very good question, and I've been asked that before, and every time I am, I tell them it's a good question, and then I forget to look at the data to see if there is. Nope, that's not true. We did look after the last time I was asked that, oh, and there good. are no sex differences, surprisingly. Oh, really? Yeah. That's really interesting. Yeah, I know. I would have thought that there might be, too. Yeah. Hmm. Wow. Yeah, I feel like of the two people in, in between me and my girlfriend, I'm definitely the more outspoken kind of uh, disinhibited of the two of us so that a lot of the time she'll be just mortified and I'll, I'll be happily unaware that there's mm -hmm. anything that's even potentially embarrassing going on so <laughs> it's kind of funny sometimes mm -hmm. um, but I've read that um, it's been said that the spotlight effect happens because people actually overestimate the extent to which their anxiety is obvious to onlookers so that got me thinking um, would that mean that a person with a mood disorder or an anxiety disorder um, would actually be increased relative to a person who does not have uh, 
one of those afflictions. Do you think that there would be any applicability there? Yeah, I would think so. I mean, I am not in clinical, so I'm not an expert, so this is largely conjecture. But my understanding is that um, something like the spotlight effect is one of the cognitive mechanisms that is related to anxiety, which is that people who are um, perpetually anxious are likely anxious because they think that the things that they do right or wrong matter more than they do. And so if they... Uh, make a little mistake in public, then they'll spend more time ruminating on it and being uh, upset about it and imagine and being uncomfortable about it because uh, because they're prone to overestimating how much it mattered to other people that they did that or what other people thought about the thing they did or how much they were judged for it. So then I, I would imagine that it could become more of a, a vicious cycle almost mm-hmm. uh, in that sort of situation. Yeah, it's I would think so. It's really interesting. So you've alluded to it. I've alluded to it. People say that opposites attract, kind of, because you mentioned uh, your partner um, mm-hmm. versus the two of you, and, and I've mentioned my own situation. So can a person who is very disinhibited be with someone who is very sensitive to that embarrassment, and what kind of strain might that put on a relationship over time? Um, yeah, I mean, you and I seem to think that you could do that. <laughs> that, <Yeah. laughs> that, that is an option. Um, and... There's always going to be differences between people. You, you know, if you have a good relationship, then you work on that stuff and try and accommodate the fact that you're different people. Um, but what I do know about the relationship literature, interestingly, uh, suggests that opposites don't actually really attract. And that's a thing that people say, which is fine because that's one way of knowing stuff. But we also have science, and science <laughs> sometimes tells us better ways of knowing things. And, uh, yeah, it turns out to be the case much more what you would probably expect if you hadn't heard people tell you your whole life that opposites attract, that actually people who are more similar are more attracted to each other. Uh, They have an easier time in general. They understand things in the same way and they have more things in common. They spend time together more comfortably because they share more hobbies. Um, So generally that seems to be the case. But obviously, as with anything, it's not a rule. And you, yeah. Yeah, definitely. So I guess to follow up on that, are you going to be looking at how much this I guess, vicarious spotlight effect could actually add to a strain or enhancement of a relationship? So like, I'm sure there's, there must be measures uh, of relationship strain within the relationship literature. Uh, would that be, could, could we go further and apply that to this effect? Yeah, so actually in one of our studies, in two of our studies, we included uh, relationship attitude measures. And so the three measures we included were relationship satisfaction, uh, commitment to the relationship, and sexual desire for your partner. And none of them varied by condition, um, which we were quite surprised by. But seemingly, it does not seem to be the case, at least from the data, that at least imagining your partner... uh, ripping one in a dinner party makes you any less sexually attracted to them, uh, which is obviously a little tongue-in-cheek. But uh, the idea is that it doesn't seem to have any real-world impacts in relationships, and the cognitive model that we're working with actually allows for that uh, because it's not so much a relationship process, as at least what the data are telling us right now. is It's not a relationship process. It's a cognitive process, an individual social cognitive process that is facilitated by the preexistence of a relationship. And so a relationship for this version of the vicarious spotlight effect, at least, a romantic relationship is a necessary precondition, and it changes the way you process 
um, social stimuli that relate to you and your partner. And once you adopt this way of processing these social stimuli, then you adopt this particular bias, which is sensitivity to the amount of attention people are paying to you as a function of your partner's relationship. But it's not an act. It's not actually about how you feel about your partner or your partner's your attitude towards your partner's behavior, even though all of that is happening at the same time. But we're purely interested in how the nature of your, how this relationship relationship sets up a cognitive a potential for a cognitive bias that wouldn't exist if you were, say, at a dinner party with a stranger. And from person to person, I'm sure there's a lot of variability with how embarrassed they might be or um, how funny they might find it mm-hmm. if their partner rip one at a dinner party. And yeah. So... You know, this, I guess it's a complex mixture of emotions that you might feel depending on who you are. Um, I guess how how variable is that? And was there any question that you asked about, like, how funny would you find this or anything like that? We didn't ask anyone directly, but what we did do is provide an open-ended uh, text box at the end of the study. And so we gave people an opportunity to offer us some feedback. And reading through the comments, there was a number of pretty funny ones just along the lines of, I've been married for 15 years, and this sounds like something Steve would absolutely do. Oh, no. Or, like, if my girlfriend did this at a party, I would just die laughing. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but, yeah, so there was, there was a number that stood out along those lines. But uh, in generally, they were more similar to what you would expect in real life, which is if this happened, I would be very upset or mortified, or I can't imagine them even doing this. If... I'm wondering if your partner consistently does embarrassing things, would you, would the other person adapt and lower the spotlight effect, like the feeling of embarrassment that they find? I would definitely expect that there would be some sort of adaptive process, but the trick, the tricky part is that it would be difficult to say that it's the spotlight effect any longer, because if you have someone who is consistently acting boorish in a way that offends you and your delicate sensibilities when you're at a dinner party, um, then eventually that's not just going to be a thing that happened that you kind of move on and forget and forgive because, I mean, there's always going to be snafus uh, that you or another are digging deep in the old-timey vocabulary bag for this answer. Um, but yes, there's always going to be things that your partner does that embarrass you or are not what you would do in that situation. Mm-hmm. But if they do the same kinds of things habitually, then at some point it becomes a trait. And that means eventually it's not a thing that they did, it's them. They're the type of person who rips one at a dinner party. <laughs> and so if that happened repeatedly, it's not just that the those vicarious spotlight effect would probably decrease, but it's not just that you're adapting to the fact that you have to be prepared for it or you know that people are paying attention to that. It's that you are probably starting to psychologically distance yourself from them because they're probably not the type of person that you really see yourself with long term. Or maybe they are. I mean, that's not for me to decide what you mm. like or don't like, but <laughs> it seems plausible to me that someone might eventually start to distance themselves psychologically and physically from their partner if they are fighting in public a great deal. <laughs> that's very true. Um, so <laughs> you mentioned that this isn't actually the main focus of your research. Um, and I'm not going to ask you about the main focus of your research. We don't have time for that. But I just wanted to get a get a feel for how did it, how was it for you branching out from you, your very specific window um, into a totally different or possibly somewhat related research field? What was that like? Um, for me, it was really fun and easy. Uh, there's a couple of reasons for that. One of them is that the social psychology area here is 
very congenial and cooperative. And so I've heard of other areas where people won't even share their ideas with other people within their area because they're worried that they'll get scooped by mm-hmm. their coworkers, And that is so foreign to me. I can't even imagine a work environment of that sort. So we all just kind of uh, hang out in the halls and in each other's offices and talk about research regularly because it's the stuff we're interested in. Um, aside from that, I'm also fortunate that my supervisor is not the type of supervisor who demands that I do a specific type of research. And he's actually has a pretty broad range of uh, interests and has spent his career kind of floating from thing to thing as he gets bored with one thing and move on to a new area. And so he's very supportive and encouraging of that. And he likes uh, when I work with other people or if I have ideas that I think would be better served in a different lab than with him, then he encourages me to do that. It's awesome that you have that collegiality and flexibility mm-hmm. that you can kind of yeah. branch out and say, hey, Sarah. Yeah, it's great. I got this idea. This is amazing. Mm-hmm. Um, well, thank you so much for coming on the show. I think that's about all the time we have. Um, it's been great having you. I hope you come on again because you have other research that you can tell us all about. And yeah. We really look forward to having you. It has much less to do with farts, but I'll try and work <laughs> the word in as much as I can anyway. Oh, um, I have to make an announcement real quick to anyone who's listening. This Friday, we are having an awareness raising and a, a recruitment event for GradCast. It's at the Grad Club. It'll be from 3 to 7 p.m. There are going to be free grad club vouchers for the first 50 attendees. Joel, I hope you make it out. I can't make it. I'm busy, sorry. Oh, but everyone else should come. It's everyone. very good. It sounds awesome. It will be awesome. We'll all be there, so except for Joel. Um, so come on out. Um, thank you so much for all listening. This has been GradCast. You can find us at gradcastradio.ca. Have a great week. That's all for this week. If you want to send us some feedback, or if you want to come on the show yourself, email us at gradcastradio at gmail.com. Be sure to hook us up on social media. On Twitter, we're at gradcastradio, and look up Gradcast Radio also on Facebook. If you want to subscribe to the podcast, the podcast is located at gradcast.podbean.com, and it's on iTunes. And while you're there, why don't you leave us a review? It really helps us out. We'll see you guys next week.